Welcome to the Daily Theology Podcast, episode number 30. I am your host, Stephen Oki. You may be thinking to yourself, it's been a long hiatus, Steve. Where has the Daily Theology Podcast been? What am I supposed to listen to during my runs and my commute? Well, listener, I do apologize. It has been a long hiatus. And there are three good reasons for this. Number one, I have been trying to finish a book. And as you can imagine, this has been fairly time-consuming on my part and has kind of sidelined the podcast a little bit. So I do apologize for that. Number two, my co-host Mike, whom you know from great interviews with Charlie Curran, Tim O'Malley, and Colby Dickinson, among others, has been working on a screenplay. So he similarly has been quite involved. And third, we've been kicking around some ideas for possible expansion of the podcast, uh, including some other types of interviews and episodes, some other possible shows as part of the podcast. And so we're still working on some ideas there that haven't quite come to fruition yet. But I'm hoping I'll have something to tell you in the in the new year in January. You may also then be wondering, after this long hiatus, what do I have to look forward to? Well, we have admittedly a brief season three. It's going to be around six episodes. But we also have a mighty season three. They are some really excellent interviews, some of the best I think that I've done. And I'm really looking forward to sharing those with you. The first of those comes to you in this, episode 30, which is my interview with Kim and Reggie Harris. If you're not familiar with them, they are widely regarded musicians and storytellers and educators. They're part of the Woodrow Wilson Visiting Fellows Program. And as part of that, they were at my university, St. Leo, this past spring during our Black History Month celebrations. And they performed, they sang, they came into classes and taught. And they sat down for a really excellent conversation with me where they talk about the influence of African-American spirituals on their spiritual lives, on how they got into coming into classrooms and in education. Uh, Kim talks about her experience of working on a Ph.D. in New York while traveling and touring full time and also talks about the setting of the mass that she did to the spirituals and to, to the music of the spirituals as part of her dissertation project. And moreover, listeners, you are in for a special treat because this, I believe, is the first episode of the podcast where our guests sing. And they have beautiful voices, and it's really quite wonderful. And I, I know you'll be very touched when it comes by. So I hope you enjoy this episode a great deal. You can, of course... Give us a review on iTunes. Uh, We only have a couple of reviews now. We could always use more. Uh, Also, during the hiatus, some asked if we could get the podcast onto Stitcher. So if you're a Stitcher person, we're on Stitcher now in addition to iTunes. And if you have any comments or questions, absolutely let us know. You can find me on Twitter at Stephen Oki. You can email the blog at dailytheo at gmail.com. You can leave comments on this post, etc., etc., Thank you so much for listening. I hope you have a great week. So welcome today to the Daily Theology Podcast. I'm very happy to welcome Kim and Reggie Harris to the podcast. Kim is a visiting professor in theological studies at Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles and also a liturgical consultant for the Office of Black Ministry in the Archdiocese of New York. And Reggie is the music director for the Living Legacy Project, which is a civil rights-related project uh, affiliated with the Unitarian Church. So thank you for both being here. Yes, well, yeah, because we get around, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I know you're here. You're here uh, this week at my university, St. Louis University, giving a series of talks as part of the Woodrow Wilson Fellowship Program. Yes. yes. And I was very excited over the opportunity to have you both on the podcast because you're both musicians, you're performers, but you also, the musical work you do is very closely tied to religion, to faith, to theology. I know, Kim, you have a, an MDiv and a PhD from Union. And the, the question I'd like to start off with to, to both of you is how, how you came to be the musicians that you are and, and how that came to be tied to you know, theological and religious life and questions that you have. Mm-hmm. If that question makes any sense. It, oh, actually, it, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, you want to start off there? Well, I would say, you know, for me, I always talk about the fact that I, I uh, grew up in a family that uh, my mother made sure that we were in church every opportunity. So I was surrounded by theology. I was surrounded by the spiritual from a very early age. It's pretty much very grounding for me. I grew mm-hmm. up in a, a black Baptist church in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And exposed to a number of other Protestant connections. And then as years went on, when I went to high school, I was part of the choir at the high school. So we used to go and sing at churches and synagogues and and a variety of different religious gathering places. So the the presence of religion, the presence of, of God, the presence of theology has always been there. As with a lot of young people, I, uh, in my teen years, began to figure out how I could get away from it <laughs> <laughs> and tried my best to, to leave the church, to leave uh, behind a lot of what my grounding sources were. Sure. And I didn't even realize what most of them were, you know, coming out of a tradition that was celebrating but not talking about so much, um, how our connection to, to God was made but I experienced all of that, and I didn't know at the time that I was experiencing so much of what the African-American experience in spirituality has been from the time that we came here. Mm-hmm. All of those influences from slavery and from being introduced to the, the Bible and to a faith path that was supporting you in your cause and, and your desire for freedom. But it was surrounded by music and embedded in music, mm-hmm. as so much of it is. So I think my connection to music certainly was one I was always a musical kid. There was music in my home, there was music at school, there was music in the church. So my expression of my spirituality was always very much a musical one. And, when you, yeah. I just have to ask, when you mm-hmm. talk about the sort of, uh, you know, expected teenage rebellion. Oh, yes. You know, from the church, <laughs> uh, you, but you didn't rebel from music, right? I never did. And in fact, I never really rebelled from the faith that was being handed to me. What I, I describe myself as an expanded Baptist. <laughs> okay. And, uh, and the reason I do, because what happened for me was at about age 13 or 14, I began to ask questions. And the folks in my church found that very challenging. And so what I began to experience, and I think the reason that I wanted to leave was because I couldn't find engagement in those mm-hmm. questions. I couldn't, they were primarily interested in me buying into the stated line. Mm -hmm. Fortunately for me, the music that I was doing in high school and choir, the music that was also entering my life just in other ways, led me into other experiences, Mm. other churches, other, you know, uh, as I said, synagogues, other faith paths that began to answer some of those questions Mm -hmm. and began to let me know that there was a larger frame Mm -hmm. for what was happening. And then uh, when I met Kim, we then continued that journey mm-hmm. through our musical you know, performances, but also through invitations that we got to come to conferences and to come to various places. So for me personally, it was just a continuation 
of that evolution of finding out mm. that there was other thought, other mm-hmm. theologies, other ways of looking at God, other ways of looking at the experience of having faith. Mm-hmm. So that was really all I was looking for. And had they just kind of come over with the answers to some questions <laughs> earlier on. <laughs> yes, save some consternation, for sure. Now for me, I, you know, I always tell the story of being in fourth grade at school and going to a black history program back when we only had black history week you know Mm -hmm. we didn't have the month yet and the presenter talked about songs of faith and freedom talked about the music of the underground railroad and secret codes you know so i thought that was fairly interesting but then i like went crazy when he began to sing the song let us break bread together on our knees I'd grown up singing that song in church. Reggie's church sang that song too. I I grew up Presbyterian. Mm. And it was, you know, we sang that song once a month on Communion Sunday. And the fact that it was also used as a secret code song on the Underground Railroad, Mm. you know, people talking about let's have a secret meeting, a meeting of what they, you know, the invisible institution, so-called invisible institution, out in the Hush Arbor. And I thought, how great and you know telling you when and where the meeting is going to be i fall on my knees with my face to the rising sun and that just got me really excited and i did want to know more about spirituals and secrets and the fact that there was a theological expression in these songs Mm -hmm. i started reading people like james cone Mm -hmm. and then to eventually get the chance to study with james cone and the people Mm -hmm. at, at Union Seminary, that's Union in New York, not Union in Richmond, (laughs) you know, has just been very exciting. So I think it's been growing. Now, all this time also, uh, you know, we were out touring and, and, you know, doing various things like that. But it was always the music that kept bringing me back. One thing that raises for me is uh, as I was, you know, doing my research and reading and I saw some performances of you on YouTube and whatnot, I noted that for Kim, your... um, was it, it was your master's thesis was an opera? Was that... Yes. My master's thesis was a one-act family opera about the Underground Railroad. And some folks said to her at the time, including me, I think I would have saved that for a doctorate. <laughs> <laughs> I had bigger fish to fry. <laughs> you did indeed. But who knew? Who knew? <laughs> so, yes, I mean, you know, I was going to opera a lot because I you know, was going to school in New York City, so I was sure. going to the opera, and I thought, well, maybe can write one of these. And Everybody thinks that, right? Everybody. <laughs> I don't know why I thought that, but I started working with, you know, with some uh, really amazing musicians, actually one in particular with Glenn Osborne. And, you know, I had an idea for a story. I knew that I wanted to weave the spirituals into mm-hmm. this opera. And I also had a lot of experience with performing for young people. So I knew what needed to happen. And I figured, let's give it a try. And yes, so <laughs> it's called Friends of Freedom. And what I did was that I looked at some of the abolitionist songs. I mean, that's that was the great thing about writing this. There's so much material out there. And actually, you know, found abolitionist songs, abolitionist mm-hmm. lyrics. And then, of course, I had the spirituals. And then I got to weave it together in an opera. I, what, I guess one thing I'm curious about with that is, in, in thinking about that, or also I know you, you, did, a, you did a mass setting, right? Uh, yes, later. the mass setting was the doctorate. That was, was doctorate. The, that was the bigger fish. There was bigger fish. Actually, did show up. And I and I want to come more to talk about that too. But I, one thing I guess I'm curious about in both is 
as someone who, I mean, I, I had my piano lessons as a child and I, you know, I, I sing okay and, and whatnot. I, I'm not someone who's, I don't, I don't see myself as sort of able to produce a work of music in and of itself. But also I, I'm curious about the production of that as both the work of music and a work of theology in a real sense. Mm-hmm. I mean, there, there is something really striking for, to me, you know, I, I mean, I struggled over a dissertation, but uh, it's a lot of words in a book, you know. It's, yes, um, it is. <laughs> and and I was—I I don't know—I was very uh, struck and and touched by having such about ha- having a work of art that is distinct from a normal text in a certain sense, mm-hmm. uh, a typical text at least, as, as the you know the sort of crowning achievement in a certain sense of both those degrees. I guess I'm—I don't even know what my question is in a certain sense. Well, I can tell you about that process yeah. because for the. For my MDiv, for the for the thesis, basically, once I came up with the opera and had some performances, I mean, I have to laugh because I said, you know, I've had more performances of my opera than, <laughs> than some most some composers. than most composers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's very it's very strange, you know. But it, you know, got to perform it and try it out in some schools, sure. and of course, I had the performance right at seminary. Now, for that, then I really just had to write a, a short reflection paper. Okay. Now, for the dissertation, that was different because the mass setting, you know, once again, dealing with spirituals. I wanted to find a, I, I wanted to, I would, see, I can't even exactly say compose a mass setting because I quote the spirituals very fully. So mm-hmm. if you know how to sing a particular spiritual, then you can sing the mass setting. So let, let's do, uh, we're going to give you an example. Yeah, absolutely, of, please. So there's a spiritual that says, give me that old time religion. Give me that old time religion. Give me that old time religion. It's good enough for me. So for each piece of the mass, I thought about what spiritual might go. Mm -hmm. Because you had to not only have the right melody, but you also had to have the right tone and tenor to go with the mass setting. So I thought about the the Sanctus, about the Holy Holy. Now, you know, thinking about it's one of the oldest of all of the mass parts. And so I thought, hmm, you know, it's old. It's really at the beginning. You know, old time religion, it might connect with it. So then after I would think about think about it that way, then I would just try it out. So eventually came up with Holy, 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 Lord God of hosts, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest, Hosanna in the highest, Hosanna in the highest and the words fit and the tone fit and people know it so you don't have to you know not only for african-american not not only for black catholic churches but also for other people that know the spirituals they just start singing it like they have been singing it all their Mm. lives in one of the trials and once it was written we have we had the opportunity to be with a, uh, a church community in New York City for right. the summer. A Lutheran community. We, yeah. we, we tried it out in Lutheran and, and Episcopal, Episcopal yeah. communities. Huh. And this particular Lutheran church is right in the village. 
And on a Sunday morning, they might have, you know, they have the people that, who go to the church, but also they throw the doors open. So any tourists who are in the area mm. might just kind of come in because they hear music or because they want to find a church. And it was a fascinating thing. Over the course of July and August, mm -hmm. we were there several times. And we had people from different countries who didn't even necessarily know the core material come in and suddenly they're just singing the mass parts. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so we knew it worked. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, so that was, you know, it was very interesting. So the actual mass, and the mass is called Welcome Table, a mass of spirituals, and GIA Publications publishes it. That became one of my exams. That was my public exam because we have huh. to give our public lecture. And then I still had to write a full dissertation. So the dissertation was writing about black Catholic history mm -hmm. and black Catholic liturgical history. Hmm. So I still had to do my, you know, 300, yeah, yeah, yeah. 300 <laughs> no, pages. No, that's good to know, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's so fascinating to me. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I, I'm so grateful that you are singing for this. This is amazing to hear. <laughs> One thing I'm kind of curious, not even as a theological question, but the experience of then having produced created and produced this opera or, or arranged and created this mass setting, the experience of seeing others perform it, if oh that's something gosh. that you've had or <laughs> what it, that's like. Right? It is incredible, you know, to be with a group of people, I guess. So, uh, so the latest has been that, you know, I'm, so I'm out at uh, Loyola Marymount in Los Angeles and I went to the black history mass at Our Lady of the Angels Cathedral in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And so I got there early, and I know uh, I've gotten involved with the uh, wider black Catholic community in, in L.A. So I got there early. They were setting up, and the choir was rehearsing. And, and I didn't know the various things they were going to do, but to walk into this new cathedral <laughs> where I have never been and to hear them singing one of my mass parts, I just stopped me in my tracks. I'm like, Lived and gone to heaven. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so that was pretty fabulous. <laughs> uh, and then the, the next step of it is that the person that I worked with, Roger Holland, who's one of the real top uh, of the composers and arrangers for black Catholic music and actually for a lot for any music because mm. he's incredible. At one point we said it would be great to have this be a, not only orchestrated, but to have it be part of a, um, a, a symphony. So what we did, he wrote an overture, the mass parts are all in there. And then there's some other, there's some other connecting material and the uh, St. Joseph, Missouri, uh, orchestra symphony, <laughs> symphony <laughs> performed it. Reggie and I sang oh, with the God. symphony. <laughs> and they had high school choirs that did all of the choral parts. Mm. So then to be in front of a symphony. <laughs> but at one point we said, you know, this is made for an assembly to sing. And so we there wasn't enough time or space, you know, in the little program book to put all of the mass parts. Okay. But we had the audience sing the prayers of the people. So when we got to, you know, we got to the prayers of the faithful, we invited the audience to sing with us and the symphony. Mm -hmm. And they did. <laughs> it was just the coolest thing. <laughs> so, you know, it's really, I think that, you know, the spirituals have such a life and they're such a part of the American story. Mm -hmm. And they go so deep in our bones that to have them, you know, not only, I mean, because, you know, spirituals are on concert stages and in choirs and in church hymnals, you know, they're all over the place. But then 
especially for, you know, for a black Catholic person to have the spirituals in the deepest place they can be Mm -hmm. in the mass. So in the warp and the weave of the mass is different than having them be just, you know, the entrance or the offertory or the communion or the recessional, you know. So that has really been an incredible experience. Yeah. In having the the recording along with, or the performance recording along with the symphony, how did that affect the, how did that affect the performance of the mass parts? And I ask in part because my understanding is, you know, the part of the instructions for the setting of the masses, it should be primarily acappella or primarily unaccompanied. Is that? Oh, for the, for the mass or for the the spirituals? For the spirituals. Oh, well, there is a, there's a tradition of how spirituals are set mm-hmm. when they have music behind them. Okay, and so okay. uh, so Roger did all of that arranging, okay. and he, he really arranged in the tradition of, like, the Harry Two Burleys and, you know, some mm, of those. Okay. Chester Hairston. Yeah, yeah some of those. All the folks who were taken on the spirituals in a more arranged form. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they, they, I mean, they really do lift out the, the integrity of the spiritual is very much present. So even with all of the, it just kind of sweetens the whole mix. Yeah, yeah. So it was, yeah, it was just, it was an amazing <laughs> experience. I'm looking, I'm looking forward to the next time we get to do that. But you know, even if there's not another time, that was just incredible. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, I'd like to hear it at some point beyond the the gift that you've already given me today. So one thing I wonder then is you, you know, prior to, you know, you've had this career, you've been traveling, you've been touring, you've been performing. I'm wondering for you, what was the motivation to go back to graduate school, <laughs> or or what, what what is it that pushed you that? Well, and I, I, and I also <laughs> I, I'm not gonna lie, I have a question like, how, what was your reaction? Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like, we, ah! can, we can share both of those <laughs> <laughs> because in some ways I really backed into it. Okay, because uh, we we live in the diocese of Albany, New York. Okay. And when we first moved there, which was what, 88, 1988, mm-hmm. we, w- we would always laugh because there was someone, and she's a wonderful person, one of the chancellors of the diocese, but we called her the Grim Reaper. <laughs> because in 1988, <laughs> this is Sister Kathleen Turley, mm-hmm. a wonderful woman. But in 1988, you know, before all the scandals and before all of that, she was already going around to parishes and saying that with the number of parishes we have and the number of priests that we have, the time is coming and will be very, very soon when we'll either have to close some parishes, we'll have to share sacramental ministers. You know, there was already that kind of talk. And so the bishop at that time, Bishop Howard Hubbard, said we need to have trained people to help keep our parishes open. And at that point, we didn't have any master's level theological studies in the Albany area. Hmm. He invited the Colgate... St. Bernard's. Yeah, St. Bernard's. That's part of that Colgate-Rochester mm-hmm. consortium. He invited St. Bernard's to come and to open an extension. And I just went there to take one course. <laughs> oh, that is so dangerous. <laughs> and it was the course was ministry as leadership and community building. And it just sounded like a great course. Mm -hmm. And I figured, well, if I helped out at the parish, I need to know. Well, oh boy. (laughs) (laughs) That's a long story. You know, but it was a great course. And I knew pretty quickly that I wanted to go back 
And in some ways it was, you know, why not? Because I, you know, I had an undergrad degree, but didn't have a master's Mm -hmm. and I was already reading and things like that. So one thing is weaving it into our performing. Sure. You know, that was always the more difficult thing. And then eventually, you know, one of the things about going when I transferred to Union Seminary is that you can wake up in the morning in Chicago and you can be in class at 1030 in New York City because that's the way flights work. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So New York City (laughs) was a place to to go to school. And I would wake up in the morning and, you know, wherever we were (laughs) on the first first thing out of town and and be in class. You ask about my reaction, and my initial reaction was, why? <laughs> you know, we were on embarked on a career. Mm-hmm. You know, it was a very busy career. We, at that point, were doing about 200, 250 dates a year. Wow. And so, the I mean, even for, with the logistics of, you know, how in heaven's name. It's right, just, was it going to happen, yeah. right? But, you know, um, our entire career and our entire lives, I think, it, just as a general, have been evolutions of do I really want to do that? Or, you know, this opportunity comes up and, you know, we discovered the Underground Railroad, as Kim said, um, through a little an opportunity that we had to go into schools. Mm-hmm. We had no intentions of that becoming what we do as a living. Yeah. Right. We or, were musicians yeah. looking yeah. for work. Yeah, we were looking for work mm. and we were looking for not exactly that kind of work. We weren't looking to increase our time in schools or historical societies or any of that or tying people into the amazing, you know, uh, history of the spirituals. But as a practical reality, once you find an opportunity, it leads to another opportunity. Sure. So you know, even though it was off the you know off the track, it wasn't. Mm-hmm. So we just began the logistics of okay, fine. Well, this being true, this will have to work. And then uh, the other thing is, I think, uh, and, and blessed with a partner who is always trying to learn, and our curiosity factor is. Whatever we're doing is going to lead to some deeper knowledge of what it is we can do. Yeah. So I think that was the the lore of it. And, you know, that's also, I think, as anybody who pursues anything in that way, you understand that, you know, there's always going to be sacrifice. There's Mm -hmm. always going to be hard work. There's always going to be things that don't quite work out. And if you keep an attitude around the focused around the things that you're learning then the thing I think that really impacts is seeing the results of what that work and that new knowledge does in the world. Right. Because, you know, we didn't know at that time, you know, I'm studying that, keeping up with the spirituals. But then we start thinking about the civil rights movement right. that we had no idea that eventually Reggie was going to be the musical director yeah. For, you know, a group that is sending people to civil rights, mm-hmm. you know, sites, you know, so everything just keeps leading other places. <laughs> and again, that opportunity came because it was a gig. Mm-hmm. Uh, some friends who had bought, gone on one of these pilgrimages where you take people on a bus and you visit four or five places a day in Alabama, Mississippi, Tennessee. And they were looking for someone who could come in and frame that experience with music. Mm. They tried a couple of people. It didn't go so well. (laughs) Those people didn't have a sense of the music. Okay. But they also didn't have a sense of the history. Mm -hmm. And how that music and history, you know, coalesced and, and fueled the movement. So I went essentially the first year to just drop some songs into what they were doing. And the fact that we had this wonderful, you know, experience and resource allowed me to see a greater sense of what it was they needed. Mm -hmm. And also seeing the way, again, how to draw that music out of the people in the communities. 
because that's the, the the important thing is that this is living music it's living materials living history yeah it's also living spirituality you know people uh, these are the songs and this is the history that kept people alive mm-hmm. and functioning in one of the most difficult throughout the most difficult periods of our nation yeah there is a, a faith co- uh, commitment to those communities still that most people, the overlay gets lost. So it's our job to point that out and to show people. Because, you know, a lot of churches, in my church growing up, we sang the spirituals. But we didn't know the history. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know? And in mine, we sang the spirituals yeah. and didn't know the history. I mean, I learned it in school. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. so that initial so after the initial of this is inconvenient (laughs) (laughs) but you know hey life is inconvenient (laughs) I I think if if you are able to and I think that is generally the the path that anyone who is uh, actively following a faith begins Mm -hmm. to see that there are always benefits as they always said you know God has a ram in the thicket Mm. You don't always see or something. Or yes. something. Something's in the thicket. <laughs> and a burning bush. And, to and you're just happy it's not you. Thank you. <laughs> and sometimes it is you. But also, I think uh, you know, studying all of this um, gave us access also to the stories of these people who were at the forefront of the movement, mm-hmm. whose faith and whose perseverance was the movement mm-hmm. and and it wasn't as if I mean there certainly were people from different backgrounds and, and, and different religious experiences who were part of the movement and coming bringing their own stuff to the table but so much of that movement and I think it, it causes us also to look at what is happening in our present movements sure I had a great uh, lecture a couple of years ago by James Lawson, Reverend James Lawson, who I actually got to visit his church this year, you know, the church that he pastored at that time. Now they have a dynamic woman minister, you know, who was <laughs> leading that fight. I know. Back then it would have never, never been. been. <laughs> but he, he talked about the fact that in any movement of that magnitude, if you do not have a grounding sense of what your connection is to the divine and you know in whatever way you choose to express that then you will likely run out of gas hmm. you will you know you will wilt and falter when the real stuff happens mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so it's given me again a deeper appreciation not only of you know my own journey but for those folks who were present in my early religious life who were coming through that time and what kept them on the yeah. path and, I, and one thing about it also is that music wasn't something off to the side, mm-hmm. it, especially in the you know in the civil rights movement. Right. Yeah. It was so much in the center, so that just you know it's just where you know where we are, but mm-hmm. it also is where the history is, and so it continues to teach us as we go. One of the the textbooks I use for my introductory theology class is Elizabeth Johnson's Quest for the Living God. And in that book, you know, each chapter is sort of a different way of looking at God, a different image of God. And there's a chapter on the Trinity, and there's a chapter on uh, like liberation theology, and there's a chapter on feminist theology. And uh, the chapter actually my students are reading for tomorrow is on, I think it's called God the Breaker of Chains, and it's on mm-hmm. African-American theology and, and whatnot. And what is one of the things I found when I've taught that chapter to students that's really striking is she talks a lot in that chapter about James Cone, and she talks a lot about Brian Massengale and, and about the spirituals. And there's a whole like third of the chapter that is, that looks at lyrics and, and talks about the codes and whatnot, but also mm-hmm. about the, 
the the religious imagination that that is underlying those texts mm. and I, I think part of what part of why I gravitate to it is one it's a way especially for a lot of my students to it's one of the chapters that helps get them into the sense of the way that our our context and you mentioned history the way our history shapes the images that we have of God or of the divine or the way that I relate to God or the way that people other than me relate to God mm-hmm. and it also it helps to make this point about the way that, that scripture is interpreted over time. This is one of the things I keep trying to get students to recognize is that scripture, inter- like scripture is not self-interpreting. Right. Um, <laughs> it's, it, even when we yeah. read it, you know, we, we were talking the other day about, you know, the question that, you know, is God, is God uh, male or female or neither or both or whatnot? And, hmm. and one student, like one student, a lot of students will sometimes really gravitate to, well, the Bible keeps saying he, it's like, it does. That's true. Let's, let's ask questions about that and, and think about why that might be and think about what we can take from that and think about what it might say about us. <laughs> and so it, it <laughs> and, and it, it, I'm not going to lie, yesterday's class was pretty lively. <laughs> 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 and I, I have expectations that tomorrow's class will be also be lively, <laughs> uh, which is good, which is fun. And, I, and I'm, I'm regretting that I had not thought about th- that class fitting so well while you were here visiting. So that's that's on my own lack of right, planning. Right, but we have some music for you that yeah, can go with that class, <laughs> and we have it right over here. So yeah. when we're done, Excellent. we have a gift for we'll you. Make a <laughs> so, but I, I guess part of part of why I bring that up is you know you know Reggie, you mentioned the the weaving of of history and of mm-hmm. music, and and Kim, you mentioned the weaving of music and religion, and I'm struck by how much my students don't have much of a sense of history, mm-hmm. and and how that how music shaped and was shaped by history and how religion shaped and was shaped by history. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the things that I, I find in this text, you know, because I mean it gathers so many different versions of this together that it's helpful. But I also think about I one of the one of the courses I teach here is a master's ethics course and I often have men who are becoming deacons in the Catholic mm-hmm. church. Mm-hmm. You know, and they're there and sometimes their wives come with them and and I'll, I'll get them, you know, a couple of semesters in a row. The semester after, I want to say it was after the Eric Garner mm. death. I think it was after that one. But it was it was especially in this time when there were a lot of incidents that were very public. Uh-huh. And I, I let that class, you know, pick from a list, you know, what are bo- what's a book you want to read to kind of cap off the, the class. And so they picked Massagale's Racial Justice in the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. And it was really striking the reaction that many of them had to this point where he's trying to talk about the effect of history on now. And he, he talks about how in the U S Catholic church for, for decades, for centuries, even that African-Americans couldn't enter the seminary. Right. And this, this thing, which is, I mean, which is a historically demonstrable fact was something that they just had trouble wrapping their minds around and particularly wrapping their minds around what, what do what do I say about this with respect to my experience of the church or my experience mm. of the mm. the hierarchy or whatnot? Because again, they're becoming deacons, right? Yes. So they're mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. they have they have things that are sort of tied to that. Mm-hmm. And I, I I guess the where, where my long tangent is leading me. <laughs> <laughs> so now I'm enjoying now, the ride. No, no, <laughs> you can you can now yes. appreciate the situation my students always find themselves in. Where is he going? <laughs> Do I have to write all this down? Yes. <laughs> uh-huh. Yes, you need to know. Why That's do you need right. to know it? You it's just need to know it. Okay. For life, not for a quiz. In your, 
um, and maybe this is more a question for you, especially Kim, because you, you're Catholic and and you you were raised Presbyterian, uh, mm-hmm. and I, I actually followed the same trajectory. I was raised oh, Presbyterian. Really? I'm Catholic now. <laughs> oh, there you go. Uh, <laughs> but I, I guess I, about the experience of being an African American Catholic in the U.S., an African American convert to Catholicism in the U.S., and knowing and teaching about the music and the history and 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 the background of the spirituals. And I wonder sort of what is your experience of teaching, of engaging with students, whether that's in the college classroom or in you know, the schools that you go into, of engaging with these kinds of systemic, structural struggles that, you know, particularly, I mean, for someone, for, for me as a, you know, white middle class male, like, uh, until I read books about it, I didn't know about this, huh. right? And, and yeah. so... Now, I, I guess it's been interesting because especially in terms of teaching, the first thing I'm finding is that we, we have to go back and teach the old stories. And I mean, in a lot of ways, that's what Reg and I are, are doing too, because I'll say to, to my students, you know, one of the foundational texts for this freedom struggle among African Americans has been the book of Exodus. Mm-hmm. Well, they don't know the book of Exodus mm-hmm. and... They haven't even seen, well, these days, maybe they have seen the Prince of Egypt. Yeah, I get that referenced a lot. Yeah. yeah. So sometimes that's the... And then they want me to play it in class. Yes, absolutely. Because <laughs> it know. was so good. <laughs> you know, and, and it would also take up class time. Yeah, that, yeah. That, that's yes, really why. Yes, it would. But, you know, but there are some pieces about it which are good because even as, you know, it's a good song is being sung, is usually asking an interesting theological mm. question. You know, but then I actually have them read the first 15 chapters of Exodus and they begin to ask their own questions mm-hmm. because they start to say, oh, I thought God was love. Well, what about these 10 plagues, locust and death and blood and, you know, uh, you know, so they begin to ask the questions. So that's very good. And then they're like, those midwives, ooh, what were they doing? You know, that, so I- Radical I, women. Radical women. So I I think I start there and then in terms of uh Do you do you find them do you ever find your students to be uncomfortable with questioning scripture in that way? Uh they're uncomfortable with an image of God that's different than the Jesus good shepherd kind yeah. of image. They, that makes them uncomfortable. They're not they don't necessarily always know so much about scripture, so it's interesting for them to actually sit and read mm-hmm. something. And then, and then I give them because, especially though, the one course I teach African American religious experience, uh, Albert Robiteau, okay. and uh, there's a book called Uncommon Faithfulness that is a wonderful text about the Black Catholic experience. And chapter one is Albert Robiteau, and he gives you four models, and he says there may be more, but he gives you four really good models mm. about the relationship between African Americans and the various religious experiences that they have had in the United Mm. States. And so the first model is kind of the Frederick Douglass model, Mm. redeeming the religion of the master. You know, so Mm. you, you know, you take it and you say the, you know, what the master, their Christianity is a hypocrisy, you know, it is hypocrisy and, you know, we're going to do a different Christianity. Mm. So that's good. But then the second model is the universal model. And he says that for black Catholics, and of course he was a black Catholic. I think now he's Orthodox, but mm-hmm. he started off as a black, uh, black Catholic. You know, he says that 
you know, the African Americans could look into the Catholic Church and see a long tradition that had something universal about it that they really wanted to embrace. Mm. And even though they had to struggle with the institution mightily, especially, you know, uh, they're, we're still struggling with the institution, as Brian Massagale yeah. talks about. There's still that piece of universality that we can look at. So I think that's where I have to go with them. And mm-hmm. then, of course, the third model is the like the Malcolm X kind of model where you you uh, redo the history behind everything mm-hmm. and to, you know, and the fourth model is the Howard Thurman model, mm-hmm. which is really that very open welcome table kind of model. It's a great, you know, if you yeah. haven't read that, that is worth no, that reading. Good, yeah. Yeah. Because even if they don't read the rest of the book, I give them a test on chapter one. <laughs> <laughs> so they know those four models. <laughs> You know, but it's it's really quite, you know, it, it, it very much is quite interesting. But, yes, to think about people that are going into the hierarchy, mm-hmm. you know, they really have to grapple with this piece. And I think not only grappling with it in terms of historically, you know, that they have to say, yes, this was a church that, you know, the hierarchy owned slaves. Mm-hmm. The, you know, the first, you know, sisters you know, they had slaves, yeah. uh, you know, so they have to grapple with that history, but they also have to think about, so what are we doing now in terms of, you know, as immigrants are coming as, you know, how are we dealing with these same types of questions and they, as leaders within this church, how are they going to deal with yeah. it? And that's, you know, so, <laughs> so I'm glad that they're thinking about the history. And of course, Brian's book is so good. Yeah. Yeah. I was a, I was an undergraduate at Georgetown. And I, oh. so I've been really struck by the last couple of years, oh, the, uh-huh. the memory project and whatnot. And yes, and yes. Now, did you have Diana Hayes as a professor? I didn't. Oh. I didn't. I think I overlapped with her. She was there when I was there, mm-hmm. but uh, no, I did not. I did not have her. But yes, yeah, so yes. I think for you know, in in looking at ways in which we have made contact with both the material and. And I will say just the students that we have come in contact with over the course of years. But it really is the general public. Uh, because, you know, one of the profs this afternoon said, boy, you all deal with such heavy subjects. <laughs> True. It, it was not a plan. <laughs> but, you know, this, this was a personal experience that we were rising out of. Mm-hmm. And I think because of our theological grounding, I think because of our intellectual opportunity, that really came from the people that we somehow came in contact with. You can call that a divine path or you can call it whatever happens, whatever you want to call it. It happened. And as we saw opportunities, we had that overlay. I think the theology of nationhood, Mm. looking at the ways in which theology has been used in various points in time, but particularly in the American experience of framing the way we think about not only our own personal journey and our collective journey, but also the nation's journey forward and how that has been misrepresented. Mm -hmm. So anytime we take on these subjects, it it makes people uncomfortable because it is rocking their very basic theological Mm -hmm. construct. And to tell people that, you know, at the very base of slavery, that the the politics of the, uh, and the theology of the nation was all there to support mm-hmm. this horrible thing that was happening in such basic ways. Yeah. And, uh, and I think that is, you know, you have to find ways to effectively, for example, you know, in a, in a just 50-minute or an hour performance, 
have to find ways to introduce that concept that mm-hmm. don't just completely explode people's minds. Yeah. Right. right. And then also finding ways to bring theology back into the struggle because there, mm. there's a great article in the Huffington Post talking about Frederick Douglass. And they said, you know, we tell Frederick Douglass's story as if he wasn't a church person. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, so to think of Frederick Douglass, you know, and, and, you know, he had his struggles with religion for sure. And he, and he had to, right. you know, but running a secret Sunday school. You know, <laughs> to teach people how to read the Bible and yeah. how to read. You know, as soon as, you know, as soon as he became a Methodist, he was like, secret Sunday school. <laughs> Which I love. The, the kids actually look, you know, uh, you know my, my college That would be cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah really. They like that idea. I think they just like the fact that it's two S's in a row. But, Alliteration has you know, but then also to think about him as a licensed African Methodist Episcopal Zion minister to think about his incredible oration as coming out of the black preaching tradition Mm -hmm. and what all of that meant you know so it's like we have to put the theology back Mm -hmm. into what he did to think about the life he lived where he was with the you know you know these days we would say he's you know an evangelical and we would say that he's very pure in the way he would keep his body. So no drinking, no smoking, no, you know, it, it, was, it was really incredible. Yeah. Then we've got to go, we've got to put the theology back into Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. The Reverend, the Reverend Dr. Dr. Mm-hmm. Martin Luther King Jr. The Reverend Ralph Abernathy. Mm-hmm. You know, the Reverend, you know, yeah, the, the, the theology of those people stands, you know, uh, is a very important part of how they got to where they got mm-hmm. and, and what uh-huh. their influences were. But it, you know, I, I, I just, I think the the difficulty, of course, these days is that, for the most part, as religion has diversified, and as people put their own spin on, you know, what they will buy into and what they won't in terms of their theological construct, to talk about what was happening for people in those movements and how you could hold them together mm-hmm. in a, becomes a very difficult thing because I don't think we have that experience, mm-hmm. you know, in our mm-hmm. present world. And as I listen to, for example, some of the preachers who have signed on to a very dispassionate political construct that we are now sort of experiencing in America, yeah, where you know the 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 message of Christ, the message of uh, the Bible, the message of faith, is not at the base of you know so much of what is happening, at least in terms of the actual text. Mm-hmm. If you're calling people to the text, a lot of people just really don't want to go there. Yeah. Uh-huh. Or they they don't know it, or or they also don't know how to put together the text and the tradition, right. you know, yeah. as we do in the, in the Catholic yeah. Church. You know, how do you right. put those things together? The other piece of it is that our intellectual life in the country, our theological life, has not kept up with our intellectual mm-hmm. life. So you know, and I, I I find students very much so whose theological life is Sunday school. Mm-hmm. And their intellectual life has really gone on ahead of that, but they still hold their Sunday school life up as if it has as deep Mm -hmm. thought behind it as their, you know, and I'm I'm sure you find this too. Yeah, there's a, I mean, it's kind of similar to the, I mean, the, you know, the the passage from Paul where it's, you know, when I was a child, I spoke as a child. And and for, I mean, admittedly, I mean, a lot of my students, you know, they're traditional, you know, 18 to 22 year old Mm -hmm. age college students. Right. You know they're right at that point where you know their thinking is shifting, putting but, away childish things. Yeah, but but they're still but they're still clinging to them. Oh, right? yeah. some of them are still clinging to them, yeah. and it's 
breaking them out of that is this real <laughs> uh-huh. it's this very dicey thing <laughs> it is and a lot of my students are also that traditional age you know, yeah too and you know it's amazing to see their eyes grow wide and you know but when they say things like you know moses was crossing the red sea to get to jesus <laughs> yeah excuse me and yes and then i have to say things such as we need to you know whose story was this to begin with well it was a christian story okay (laughs) how do we study judaism in its integrity yeah you know and how do we now the best question that i had this semester so far was that the uh, campus rabbi came in to speak to the class and at one point the students their eye you could see their eyes getting big and they finally started saying how can we be good allies mm. to you as a Jewish religious leader? Best question mm. of the semester. Yeah, that's you know, especially important. now, yeah. you know, when you know yeah. that when the, you know cemeteries are getting desecrated yeah. and synagogues and all. So I'm like, okay, good. You know, yeah. I don't care if you figure out everything about Judaism, but learn <laughs> at least know that people need allies and they need allies in the integrity of who they are while you are in the integrity of who you are. Yeah. And that their experience of the divine is different from ours. You know, I think that is one of the other difficulties of, you know, we become such a, uh, uh, you know, a, a monofocused, you know, populace. And, you know, quite frankly, unfortunately, people make stuff up. Yeah. Yeah. You know. I mean, people are very comfortable these days making stuff up. Yeah. So calling them back to the integrity of a text, mm-hmm. or at least to the the possibility that you may not quite have it all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And my, that it has changed through the, through years, the years as yeah. things go on. Yeah. You know, so. My wife has this quiz she likes to give at the beginning of any semester she teaches Bible, which is, you know, it's a list of things. And is it in the Bible or not? Oh. And, it's, and it's kind of like, you know, cleanliness is next to godliness. Yeah. God helps those who help themselves, you know. Yeah. Spare the rod, spoil the child. child. And then, I mean, then it's also got, you know, like the Lord's. But sure, it's got some more standard ones. So it's, yeah. there's a mix. You know, you can't just, you know, check right. no on all of them. Uh-huh. Yeah. But it is kind of striking for students to think like, oh, oh, I thought this was in there. And there's not any malice in it. It's just they, you know, they've been sort of imbued in this. Now, one of the interesting things in the work I've been doing has also been that a lot of the time I'm working with Unitarians. Mm-hmm who, you know, can espouse or, or, or tie into any number of, of different thoughts about how their religious path is, is uh, expressed, trying to explain to them the power of the civil rights movement in terms of the biblical aspirations and connections to it, which many of them, uh, one of the funny stories from the last tour we did in November, and we, had, uh, we started in Memphis, and then we go through Mississippi and Alabama. Day after day, we're going into black churches, and uh, so we've just had an election that on the very frame of it has rocked people's worlds. Mm-hmm. And they are, so a lot of the people on our bus, I would say 90% of the people on our bus were either Unitarian or were other, you know, few atheists. And, and we talk about that in terms of, you know, trying to help them understand that where we're going very much has Bible context, mm-hmm. you know, a Christian context, but a, a real a deep faith context in terms of the principle stories but time after time we're going into these churches and people are standing up and telling these horrific stories of their you know the clan coming in and you know burning down the church or beating them after they left the church or you know crossing the Edmund Pettus Bridge on Bloody Sunday or what sustained them in mm-hmm. their faith and we come to the fact that two days before we've had this election that has exploded America 
And the people on our bus are saying, we have no idea how we're going to go on. And the people in the churches are standing up and saying, hey, we've seen this before. Right. This is, this is not the worst <laughs> yeah. day in America. No. Yeah. Right. And they're saying, hey, we're just breathing hard and going on. Yeah. So by Thursday, we, we <laughs> gathered everybody together. <laughs> and they're just... I mean, completely blown, you know, with all this <laughs> of, I mean, testimony after testimony of we are grounded, we are working, we are moving on. Mm-hmm. And literally one of the, the folks stood up and she said, how do we get some of that? <laughs> and I said, well, you take about 250 years and then you, <laughs> and then you take the connection of the stories and these songs. Mm-hmm. They began to see the connection. Mm-hmm. And it's not like they're going to go home because people always go, oh, I just want to I want to be in this church all the time. I said, this said, is no, not you authentic don't. <laughs> to who you are. Yeah. Right. Right. You have to find your own piece of this. But their eyes were open in terms of the the ability to face something. Mm-hmm. And I said, these aren't the I mean, you know, this is not the worst day in America. Mm-hmm. Oh. Do your homework. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it just reminds me of, I think it was right after the election, there was the SNL sketch with oh. Dave Chappelle and Chris Rock and oh, with their, yes. their friends. And their <laughs> and yes. The white friends are yeah. all like, this is terrible. The world's that negative. They're like, I mean, it's not great, but it, you know. But yeah, yeah right. <laughs> but it's interesting too, because I mean, the, the image that you're kind of evoking for me is if you think about, you know, visiting a friend's house for dinner, and and it's you know it's lively and it's you know loving and wonderful and it's great exchange and everything and you're like I want to be at this house every day it's like yeah. no, no you don't right because like, not every day is like that no you right. know? and and right. the, that that kind of strength and closeness and my students have been doing a lot with the parable of the sower lately mm. right so the you know the good soil like it doesn't just get to be good soil from, from, you know, out of nowhere right like it it's cultivated right like. So sometimes you gotta throw some, you know, manure yeah. on it, and well, as we as we wrap up, I, I mentioned before I have a, a closing questionnaire of somewhat less serious songs. Okay, so this is like the, like questions. the seventy yeah. questions they yeah. ask you. Yeah, okay. but only five, only five. Okay. So my first one is given that you're both musicians, I have two music ones actually. Hmm. First one is what is your favorite or your least favorite liturgical song? <laughs> oh. Oh, oh my oh. Mm. you can go either way okay. Okay. well my one of my new favorites is a new setting of a psalm and I'm not even going to know which one it is but I sang it the other day and thinking of how we get hip hop into the psalm so, mm. so the, you know mm. so the setting now is justice shall uh, flourish in his time and fullness of peace forever. Justice shall flourish in his time. And fullness of peace forever. And then we got to the end of the psalm mm-hmm. and started with the people and say, J U S T I C E. I'm not even sure if it all worked. But the but to bring that ancient tradition yeah. <laughs> that far forward mm-hmm. felt really. Good. <laughs> <laughs> well, because of my eclectic nature, two things pop into my head. One would be the uh, a song off of last Andre Crouch album, okay, which is an old time gospel romp that he does. And uh, oh, so the. Uh, Oh, um, oh, it just went out of my head. You know, 
That anyway, there's several on there. It's a, a song about going to heaven. Mm. And it, the reason I love it is it, it's just an old, it's kind of done in the old school guitar, guitar bass drums with a choir behind it. Mm-hmm. The whole album is in, but that particular song. The other song that comes to mind immediately is God Beyond All Names by Bernadette Farrell. Okay. Which I never listened to without being close to tears. Hmm. Yes. Huh? I mean, her the, the, her music and the way she interweaves the w- lyrics, and yet it's still, most of her music is still singable for the assembly. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's great. Yeah. Okay. My second question, of whom or what would you be the patron saint? <laughs> oh, dear. oh, my goodness gracious. Oh. I like to think of this question as aspirational. So okay. aspirational. Yeah. <laughs> nice, nice. Well, I think I would be the patron saint of laughter, mm-hmm. <laughs> laughter and good humor. I think. Mm-hmm. People tell me that they follow. They well, I had once had some students. I was teaching a music camp. We were teaching a music camp, and our our place was out of the way, mm-hmm. and so you had to walk through the woods. And you had to walk through, and my students told me that they found class every day. <laughs> By following my laugh through the woods. <laughs> That's a good one. That's a great image. And <laughs> <That> it's <is> true. <laughs> and so I think I would, I would definitely be the patron saint of cantors. Because <laughs> we have got to get the people to sing. Yeah. And we've got to do it well. And we've got to do it consistently. So, yes, pa- patron saint of cantors. I do not envy your job. <laughs> <laughs> Me it's either. Big, it's <laughs> depends on, yeah, it depends on the day. I, but. I, like, I, I, and I like to sing at church. And I, you know, enough times, you know, I've been asked, like, will you join the choir and things like that. Mm-hmm. And part of why I resist is laziness and scheduling and that kind of thing. But part of it is also, there's some part of me that thinks I can do more good if I'm in the assembly singing. Oh. And like, oh, I'm, I'm oh. behind, like, I'm behind, you know, like, you know, some ladies or, or some men around and like, if they hear me singing, maybe they're more and likely to sing. And, and that's great. And that's a great yeah. thing to do, too. Because, you know, to scatter every now and again, like once a month to scatter the choir out yeah. through the assembly. <laughs> it's a beautiful thing. <laughs> All right. So number three, what would be the title of your biography or autobiography? Oh. oh, that's a great one. If you want, you could do it for each other, but no problem. Let's see, what would be the title? I think, you know, it's got to be something about many roads leading home. Mm. You know, because I've been on, I, yeah, I feel like I've been on lots of different journeys, but they're all, they're all heading home. You know, it's just goodness knows how I'm going to get there, or, mm-hmm. or God knows how I'm going to get there. <laughs> <laughs> So what about you? I think mine would be something about the music made it work. Mm. Or the music made it matter. Something about the way music opens doors or the way music opens hearts. Mm-hmm. I like that. And number four, what is a guilty pleasure TV show or movie for you? <laughs> oh, goodness. Well, I've watched The Devil Wears Prada about... 50 times. (laughs) And then my other guilty pleasure these days, HGTV. I just love when they're like, you know, picking out houses. (laughs) And if I hear the word backsplash one more time, (laughs) 
But I, I love it. I just put yeah. it on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, you know. <laughs> yes, granite. Yes. Yeah. Granite. Why does everybody have to have or, a granite uh, countertop? Open concept. That's the other one. Open, open concept. Yeah. Open concept. So yeah. I suppose you, it sounds like you watch HGTV. My wife watches a lot of House Hunters. <laughs> and so I, yeah. I'll, I'll filter in and I'll see like one of the houses. And I'll kind of, you know, zone in and out. And, yes. Yeah. Open concept. Yep. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yep. So there you go. <laughs> Well, mine would probably be uh, some sports program, but uh, recently also uh, when I was on the road, uh, there's a, a series, Luke Cage. Oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, that one. Yeah, that's uh, a great show. It is a great show. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I, I loved in it, I think maybe one of my favorite things about it actually is all the, because so much of it is set at that club in Harlem. Yeah. All yeah. the performances. Yeah. And, oh, yeah. And like, get, like getting those people to actually come and do them as they're <laughs> in the show. Like, I, yeah. I've I've listened to on I think on I think it's on Spotify someone has put together a playlist. Oh really? Yeah, yeah. It's worth looking for. Okay. And it, I mean, it's you know, it's like ninety or a hundred songs long. It's huge. <laughs> and I I listen to it sometimes and during office hours in the background. <laughs> so some of the songs I have to turn down a little bit because language. But uh, it's a remarkable. Song. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So last question. Okay. If you could perform any piece of music for Pope Francis at the Vatican. What would you choose? It would be my mass of spirituals. I, I you know, I, I want, I want welcome oh. table. Okay, here's here's what I want. <laughs> They're going to be canonizing. Yeah, you know, I want them to canonize Sister Thea Bowman. Mm-hmm. And at that canonization mass, I want welcome table mass of spirituals to be the mass setting. That'd be wonderful. <laughs> I think for me, it would be singing. Wade in the water, and probably one of the spirituals like uh, "Fix Me, Jesus." Mm-hmm. Now, truth is, I did get to sing. Uh, oh, what was it? I'm trying to think. I'm not sure if you were there for this. Uh, I get to sing "Up Over My Head" for the Dalai Lama, and, nice. and he was he was sitting about as close as Reggie is sitting to me right now, <laughs> and he was sort of bopping along. <laughs> That was in, in Riverside Church. That was cool. <laughs> if I can ask, if you're willing, would you be willing to sing a little bit of Fix Me, Jesus? Oh, sure. That... Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Oh, fix me.
Fix me, Jesus. Fix me. That was wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you so You're much welcome. for having us. And thank you so much for being here. I, I've oh, sure. been very enriched by this, and I, I'm very look, much looking forward to, to sharing this with others. The Daily Theology Podcast is produced bi-weekly by dailytheology.org. Daily Theology is a Catholic blog that pursues faith-seeking understanding in everyday life. You can find us online at dailytheology.org, on Facebook at Daily Theology, or on Twitter at Daily Theo. 